The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. guys, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My name is Darren Smith, and I am the senior pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church. We're near the World of Fun Water Tower on the north side of Kansas City in the Northland. We want to welcome you as we have been recording these now for about the last five months, pretty much since lockdown started. Many of you know this, but our website is towerviewkc.com, towerviewkc.com. We are gathering physically this morning at the time you're watching this. Every Sunday at 10.30 a.m., we have a space provided on our green space to sit and bring your chair. You can drive in in your car and stay in your car, or by reservation only, you can come inside to worship all. One place, same, same Lord, one faith, one baptism. You let us know. But especially if you're watching us and you're visiting, or if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, please drop a comment below or message us below. We'd be more than happy to talk with you about those things. Uh, let me read our scripture today. We'll pray and we'll get into our text as we do. We're in Psalm 67, Psalm 67, doing the summer of Psalms. And this week is a lesser known Psalm, Psalm 67, all of seven verses. I'll be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is our pew Bibles here as we read together. Hear God's word this morning. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among the nations, all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, and let all the peoples praise you. Verse 6, and the earth has yielded its increase, O God. Our God shall bless us. So God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word. Let's pray together, and we're going to get started this morning as we study Psalm 67, the missionary psalm. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you on this Sunday morning, we are grateful to gather. Those watching this, Lord, many are gathered at home, and, and during this pandemic time, we thank you for their attention this morning. Father, we're praying whether someone watches this now at the time we publish it around 1030 on Sunday morning, or if it's many weeks or months later, that, Lord, they hear the gospel truth. Father, thank you for this psalm, short as it is, as it reminds us that you are the sovereign God who is, who is going to be uh, perceived, the God who is praised, and the God whom we proclaim. So, Father, as we look at this, may it encourage our faith, may it edify our faith, for, Father, your word has been given to us. It's, it's the God-breathed word. And it's been given to us uh, to do every good work. And we're to study it like the Bereans to find whether what we say about it is true. So, Lord, in all these things, help us to be good workers unto your word and speak to us. Not my words, Lord, but your word this morning. We pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story told about a young missionary named Herbert Jackson, Dr. Jackson. And he was given a car to help him in his work and in this missionary endeavor. And the car was such a major asset, but it had one great difficulty. It would not start without a push or a jump start. And so Jackson devised a system to cope with this car's inability to start. 
So when he was ready to leave home in the, in the country he was at, he lived nearby a school. So he would recruit, if it was a school day, the local kids to come push his car so he could get a running start to start the car. And so throughout the day, he'd always try to park on a hill so he could leave, uh, go down the hill with momentum, or he'd leave the engine running. And for two years, this young missionary was just beside himself with his ingenuity to make his car work despite its obviously inability. So when poor health forced Jackson and his family to leave the field temporarily, a new missionary soon arrived on the field. And when Jackson explained to the new missionary his methods for starting the car and smiling all the way, explaining how God had blessed him with these great ways to make it work, the young man, the other missionary, opened the hood and began inspecting. And the young man, the new missionary, said, well, Dr. Jackson, I believe the only trouble here is this loose cable. Do you see it? And the man gave the cable a twist. He pulled the switch, and the engine roared to life. And for two years, Dr. Jackson, the original missionary, had used his own devices and endured needless trouble simply with a loose cable. And the power to start the car was there all the time. It only needed to be connected. As we look at Psalm 67, I think that story makes a lot of sense. Because as Christians especially, what we're going to talk about is something we know is already under the hood. We already know it's there. But there are times in our faith where we feel like we have to be so we have to have such ingenuity, such creative methods, such uh, ability beyond ourselves to, in order to make it work. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the struggle we have as God's people to connect the dots with the basic things he's told us to do. In specific, what I'm referring to is to tell others about him, tell others about God, and disciple other people to God. You know, Paul struggled with this in some sense. In 1 Corinthians 2-3, he said, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And the list goes on. Moses, Gideon, Jeremiah, Peter even for a season. You run the list. They all struggled with the call God put on their life, especially to go and talk and share and tell and proclaim the name of this God. But at some point, we have to be like those people who were of the second generation out of Egypt, specifically Joshua and Caleb, who when they saw the challenge before them, scared as they may have been, nervous as they may have been, but trusted in God all the way so much that they were ready to move forward in faith. And I think some of you may be asking yourself this morning, as I asked myself these questions as I was looking through this psalm, I mean, is this really true? Does God really desire to use someone like me to reach the world for the gospel? I mean, isn't, aren't we just like that Dr. Jackson story? I mean, aren't us under the hood, aren't we little, a few loose cables short of really being effective for God? Well, maybe, but that isn't the point. I mean, does, or maybe further, does God actually want me to be uprooted? or be planted in some foreign missionary field? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, God is calling some into the foreign fields. And I encourage you, if you're watching this or you're hearing the sound of my voice, that could be you. God may be calling you to a foreign mission field. But for most of us, in fact, for the majority of us, that is not the case. Yet the Lord still has a mission for your life. It's like that king who was converted to Christ some time ago. He decided to denounce and renounce his throne in order to serve Jesus on the foreign fields. But after spending time in prayer, the new king converted, was convinced by the Lord to stand the throne and to serve him as a king as a way to influence his nation. The point is, is that the Lord has called every Christian to be a missionary. But only some of us will have to leave the country to obey that call. 
And if that is not you, the Lord is calling you to embrace his mission for you right here, right now, right where you are. Yes, even during these pandemic days. And Psalm 67 reveals at least three ways in which God will do that. But the simple big idea, the simple thing about this, this very straightforward lesson is this, is that God desires desires us, rather, to reach the world for his glory. God desires us to reach the world for his glory. And he desires to use us so the earth may know how to perceive him, how to praise him, and how to profess him. We're going to unpack that in the psalm. But Psalm 67 is not one of the most well-known psalms. In fact, it's lesser known. But the message is, is that the Lord desires to use your life to reach the world for his glory and the good of others. This is a missionary psalm. God is being known. God is being praised. God is being enjoyed. And God is being feared by all the nations. And this psalm emphasizes that the worship of God being spread to all the nations is the point of being part of God's people. Yet this missionary psalm also has a very personal aspect to it. As a member of God's covenant people, this writer begins by asking God for blessings and ends it in anticipating, like a kid at Christmas, those blessings to come to him as he prays. And the idea I want to get to you and I get across to you as you hear this today is that the psalm's writer and his personal desire for blessing and his desire to reach people with what we now call the gospel and the nations are not in conflict. They actually work together. They're harmoniously related and even dependent on each other. The psalmist wants to be blessed. But more than that, he wanted to be a channel of God's blessings, not a terminal. He wanted to be a river of God's blessings, not a reservoir. He wanted to be a pipeline of God's blessings to others, not a faucet that leads straight into his own house for source of water. He wanted to be blessed, but he also wanted to be a blessing so others may know this God. And I submit to you that this is how God desires to use you as you listen to this, as you watch this in your life. And church members, especially Tower View members, this is what God desires to do in your life as well. He desires to use you and me to reach the world for his glory. So let's get to that first point then, that God wants to use you so the world may perceive him. God wants to use you so the world may perceive him. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Now before we get to that verse specifically, I want to just remind you that these verses, in fact, this psalm is based upon two promises from the Old Testament. First, from Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, Abram, or Abraham as he would become known, was given the promise by God. God said, Abram, I am going to bless you and your descendants are going to be as multiple as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. You won't be able to count them. And he promised that he would be the father of many nations. We also know from Numbers 6, 24 and 26, and we hear this often in churches or, or, or as a blessing at weddings perhaps, that God commanded Moses to instruct Aaron and his sons, the priests, to bless the people. You've heard this before, but let me read it. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So as we come to verse 1 of Psalm 67, where we start looking at how God wants us to perceive him, that others may know him in this world, we see that same language. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. 
The word gracious there, I think, is the more accurate translation. In fact, the Hebrew word translated gracious is the same blessing in number 625 I just read. So this is, this is a, an important distinction because the psalmist is not asking God for mercy to be restrained from being punished for something he's done. Instead, he's asking God for grace. God, be gracious to me because the divine blessings are ones that he does not deserve. And so he says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. But notice that the gracious blessings of God are pictured here in physical terms, with God's face shining upon the children of Israel. The psalmist did not want to experience the darkness of having God turn away from him. So he asked God to smile on him in such a way that the glory of God's shining face would light up his life. But let's remind ourselves, Moses couldn't even see the glory of God. He had to see the backside of God's glory. Yes, 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 reminds us that when, when Moses came off the mountain, when he had seen God's glory, his face was shining like the sun. And Jesus, we were told in John 12, that if you saw Jesus, you saw, in effect, the face of the Father. So we have access through the Son to behold the face of God. But the face of God is, is a physical representation of what it means to be blessed of God. And the psalmist says, God, use me in such a way in this world. Bless me. Turn your face upon me that others may know you. They may perceive you. They may understand you. You know, and that's what God wants to do. The psalmist asks God to bless people in a great way. And this request teaches us is that there's absolutely nothing wrong to ask God for, especially in your life, for him to bless you. In a real sense, God was asking, the psalmist was asking God for blessings that were already his. The point is that the priestly blessing was to remind Israel that they were God's people. And if you've received Jesus Christ by faith, Christian, if you have come to know Jesus, Ephesians 1.3 says this. It says, you've already been blessed. It says, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we are God's blessed people. And through Christ, we have access to the blessing of God in our lives. Look, you can pray for God to bless you. But like all things, there comes with responsibility. Jesus said, ask whatever you will and my Father will give it to you. Ask anything in my name and my Father will give it to you. But be careful. Don't abuse that. Don't, don't, don't take that so, to the bank, so to speak, in a way God never intended. What the psalmist is praying is much different than how most people see this. About 20 years ago, I think it's been about that long, um, uh, Bruce Wilkerson put out a book called uh, The Prayer of Jabez. That was a big thing back in 99 and 2000. It was all over the place. T uh, top 10 best-selling book on the New York Times. And it was based upon an obscure verse in Chronicles where the man prayed, Lord, bless me and enlarge my territory. And people would pray that like it was a, like, like a medicine the doctor gave them daily so that God would bless them. And when people didn't see those blessings, there were reports that people were getting mad at God because, well, I prayed this prayer and God didn't bless me the way that I wanted him to bless me. It's not what's in view here. Verse 1 records the prayer request for God's blessings, but verse 2 tells us the result of what those blessings should be. Notice verse 2. He says that your life may be known on earth, your saving powers among the nations. The psalmist, the writer of the psalm, teaches us here how to pray personally and selfishly at the same time. Selflessly, rather, at the same time. He prayed for the blessings of God, 
But he was not just thinking about himself. He wasn't trying to pad his stats. And he wasn't just thinking about his family, his tribe, his nation, his neighborhood, whatever. He was thinking about people he most likely would never personally meet. He was thinking about the nations that were around him. And the psalmist prayed personally and selflessly at the same time. And the example confronts us with the fact that we should not count God's blessings primarily for our own comfort, benefit, health, wealth, or prosperity. Mark this down. God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. God blesses us. He gives to us graciously that we might be a blessing to others. So as verse 2 says, they may perceive him. They may know on the earth your saving power. That is the prayer. And God will soon stop sending blessings to you if you cannot send blessings through you. And so the psalmist prays that he may see the nations come to him. The psalmist wanted others to be blessed so that they would know God, they would experience God, they'd be forgiven by God. And the implication here is that people will not, or rather cannot, know the way of God naturally, inevitably, or automatically. If you're not a Christian and you're watching this, you can't perceive God in this first point apart from knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, at, at, as they were working out of house and home, they owned their sin because Adam and Eve sinned. And through Adam, the sin rolled down. Romans 5 said, as sin came in the, through the world through one man, so all of us have sinned. And our sin has shut us away to God, the way, the truth, and righteousness. But the good news is, is that God has been gracious to us. He has allowed us to perceive Him. Acts 17 says that God is not far from each one of us. James 4 says that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So as the psalmist prayed, he was praying that God would bless him, yes, but he was praying that people would come to know the greatest blessing, which is God himself. And we who live on this side of Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, we know that God's way and his saving power are only known through Jesus Christ. And if you're watching this and you've never repented and turned from your sin and trusted Jesus alone for your salvation, we pray that this is the day. For the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Come to him. He will not, not no wise cast you out, Jesus said. So we live and pray and serve so everyone may know who Jesus is. They may perceive who he is. So that's number one. God wants to use you so the world may perceive him. But notice, secondly, in verses 3 to 5, that they may praise him. They may praise him. In the opening verses, the writer prays for the blessings of God so that they may know God's way and God's power. But here in verses 3 to 5, it shows us that world evangelization or world proclamation itself is not our goal. Let me say that again. World evangelization is not our goal. The salvation of the nations is simply a means to an infinitely greater end. It is the glory of God. Let's be clear. Yes, we want people to come to know Jesus Christ. That's why we send missionaries. As Southern Baptists, I think we're back up to about 5,000 full-time or career missionaries. That's a lot of people. But I want to remind you that simply getting people out of hell is not the primary purpose. It is a very close second. But the primary purpose is that we 
pray, the nations may know God, so the nations may worship God. They may glorify Him. They may praise Him. Look back at verse 3 and 4. It says in Psalm 67, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the world with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Dr. John Piper, who is a great writer in his book, a famous book, classic book called Let the Nations Be Glad, said this quote. Many of you have heard this quote before. It's worth hearing again or for the first time. He said, quote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man, end quote. This is the passion of the psalmist. That quote may confuse you, but he is, John Piper is, as well as the psalmist, is convinced that God is worthy of the highest praise. Let the peoples praise him. And it's expressed by his longing that all the nations would join him. And that's why he says the same thing in verse 3 and verse 5. Hebrew, it's called the Hebrew parallelism. They say the same thing twice. Parents, we do this all the time. We tell our kids the same thing all the time. We say the same thing again and again and again because it's important to us. And while the author of Psalm 67 is is anonymous, whoever it is, it's clear that he was a true worshiper of God. And the proof is that he was one who worshipped God in spirit and in truth. It's not found in his personal worship, but in his desire to see every people of every nation come to worship God just as he is. The proof of his worship is found in the fact that he longed for unsaved, uncouth, unregenerate uh, people, the Gentile nations, to repent and believe and worship the living God with him. And this is not some Israelite jihadism, to use a modern term. This isn't some religious warfare. He's praying on other people. He's genuinely praying, God, let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples perceive you. Let them come to know you. Let them come to extol you. Because this is the passionate longing of every true worshiper. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and you know this well, called the Great Commission, Jesus declared in no uncertain terms these words. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ is a sovereign Lord that reigns over all creation. And he has charged his followers in obedience to his command to lead those who do not know him to repent of their sins and trust him for salvation and follow him in obedience. The Great Commission of Matthew 28 is a fulfillment of Psalm 67. It's a fulfillment of Numbers 6. It's a fulfillment of Genesis 12, which we've already mentioned. But note the scope of the mission Jesus says. Jesus doesn't just call us to make disciples of our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, even those unsaved people in our network of, of folks of influence who need our witness about the resurrection and cross of Christ. Jesus calls us to do that, but he calls us to even a far greater thing than our family and friends. He calls us to make disciples of all nations, of all the unreached peoples of the world. This is a mission as, that is as small as your neighborhood and as big as six to eight billion people, however many we have these days. Yet Christ has authority over all creation, and all the nations of the world should love, trust, and serve him. 
And this is the ultimate goal of our evangelism and missions and outreach, that a far greater number would worship the, and praise the Lord. And so Psalm 67 is an example of how this works. In verses 3 and 5, the psalmist expresses his longing that all people would be converted. But verse 4 is central it's to the, the, the understanding of this psalm because he says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. You see, church, true worship is a two-sided coin. John 4.24 says it is in spirit and in truth. It's both a personal experience and it's a corporate, it's a, it's a congregational experience. But as the Westminster Catechism says, it says it best, I think. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What am I trying to say? There are two sides of worship. The glory of God is to rise far above and beyond us, but the enjoyment of God, expressing ourselves to Him, is to dwell within us. When He tells them, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you, He's also telling them in verse 4, for the nations to enjoy God. Let the nations be glad, He says, and sing for joy. But why should the nations renounce their idol gods and turn to the living God? Well, there's at least two reasons that we see. It's, it's because there is holy justice and sovereign authority. There is joy in the holy justice of God. He says, you will judge the peoples with equity. Why should the nations praise God? And why should we long for people to praise God? I mean, it may sound odd to speak of finding joy in the judgment of God. But the psalmist does not call for the nations to be glad about the judgment of God itself. He calls for them to rejoice in the manner of God's judgment. God's judge and judgment with the peoples will be with truth, with equity, and with righteousness. And the nation should be glad in God because they can trust Him to do what is always right. And, and they don't indict anything that God does wrong because God does no wrong. He is sinless. And do not indict the holy justice of God by poverty in this world or racism or rioting or, or pandemics or violence or injustice or corruption. Blame sin for that, not God. Instead, measure God's holy justice by the cross of Christ. It was there on that cross some 2,000 years ago that God judged the nations in verse 4 by placing the guilt on our, of our sins on His Son. And God laid on Him the punishment, the iniquity for us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Why should the nations praise God? Because Jesus has once and for all dealt with the answer to life's questions. How can I be forgiven of my sin? And Jesus says, here I am. Look at me. I died for you. I rose, rose from the dead. In the cross, God treated his son as if he had committed all our sins so that by faith he would treat us as if we've performed all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the first reason that you're to praise him is that he has holy justice. The second reason that the nations are to praise the Lord is that there is joy in the sovereign authority of our God. It says, you will judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And as you look around this world today, do you not believe that the world needs guidance? But where should we turn to find it? The psalmist says the nations should rejoice in the fact that God is willing and able and sufficient and sovereign enough to guide the nations. The term guide does not refer to wisdom which God works in the world. It refers rather to His authority. 
the New King James says it this way, that God will govern the nations of the earth. Look, God already rules over the nations. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Our God is sovereign, and Christian, you need to remember this. That means he reigns in perfect authority over everything and everyone at all times, yes, even during a pandemic with COVID. God is in charge of everything. God is God all by himself, and you should not be turned off by this. We ought to rejoice and be glad and know that our lives and the direction of the world is not the result of accident, chance, or circumstance. That's why we praise him. That's why we ask God to bless us that others may perceive him. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look, God guides, God governs, he guards everything that happens in this world. And the nation should rejoice to know that he has the whole world in his hands. We've seen that God wants to use you so that the world may perceive him, they may praise him, and finally in verses 6 to 7, that they may proclaim him. Perceive, praise, and finally proclaim him. Verses 6 and 7. But I want you to see something here. Psalm 67 ends the same way it begins. It's with a statement about what it means to be blessed. Verse 6 says that the earth, it kind of uses a farming term, an agricultural term here. It says the earth has yielded its increase. And the grammar here is kind of complex, but let's walk through it together. Translators disagree, uh, as I found in my study, about what this should, should mean. Is it referring to a past tense, the earth has yielded in the past its increase, or a future tense, that the, the earth will yield its increase? Well, either way you take it, it's an affirmation that God is faithful, that there is a faithful God superintending everything. And the statement highlights the, the dilemma of what we face as humans. I mean, think about it. The farmer works the field, but he can't make the earth yield its increase. We can bring the best methods the best uh, uh, genetically engineered seeds. We can water, we can plow, we can till, but there's no guarantee it will grow unless God gives the blessing. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, or God made it grow. So neither he knew who plants nor he who waters it is, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Just a side note here, that's why we should never do what the Corinthians did. We should never look at another church during these times and say, man, I wish our church was like that church. Or I wish our church, man, if we just did things like that church, we'd be in a lot better situation. Look, we may learn from each other. We may grow together. But if there's one thing, if we're going to proclaim him in this world together, we are not fighting about what this church is doing or what that church is doing. God has called us to a certain place, to a certain time, to be faithful where we are called. Don't look over the other side of the pasture because the cows still poop over there too. It doesn't mean the grass is always greener. Paul could not produce a harvest of his own. He needed a partner with Apollos. But Paul and Apollos couldn't make the harvest together either. All their labors would be in vain if God did not give the increase. So the fact that God causes the earth to yield its increase affirms that we can trust his faithfulness to take care of us when we cannot take care of ourselves. Furthermore, the, the earth yielding is, in, in verse 6 is a picture of the constant, providential, and generally unnoticed way in which God takes care of his people. I mean, think about this. 
The process of crops growing in a field is not a noisy, obvious, and sensational thing. You know, you go to sleep, the, the plant just kind of grows overnight. That's kind of, it's just how it works. It does it quietly. But it is a mighty work that only happens because of the faithfulness of God. And friends, because of sin, all we can produce is thorns and thistles. All we can do is do what we do. So God is the only one who's able to make the earth yield its increase, and God is faithful to provide. But he's not in some grand way. It's through just a simple plodding through of life. The faithfulness of God is regularly demonstrated through the simple living of life. I mean, think about this. In the ordinary but, but ongoing ways, God takes care of his children. I mean, you have life, you have health, and strength right now because God is faithful. You have food, you have clothing, you have shelter because God is faithful. You have family, you have friends, you have loved ones because God is faithful. And the list goes on. And because we can put our confidence in the faithfulness of God, we can be confident about the favor of God. When we ask God to bless us, to be a, a blessing to the nations, when we pray, God, let all peoples praise you, we can count on him that all people every day will proclaim him, whether they say Jesus is Lord or they simply bow the knee in submission. And that's what verses 6 and 7 are. It says, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. So let all the earth, ends of the earth fear him. In verse 1, the psalmist prayed that God would be gracious to him and bless him. But now in verses 6 and 7, he announces the future arrival of God's blessing with a confident expectation. He does not expect the coming favor of God because he's earned it or he deserves it. Or he says, hey, God, look at me. His confidence is in the faithfulness of God, not in his own. Because God faithfully causes the earth to yield its increase, the psalmist was confident that God would bless them in the days to come. And I submit to you, church, that because God is faithful, we too can live with the expectation of God's blessing in our lives. Lamentations 3.21, it says this, Jeremiah writing, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. I want to repeat this. Because God is faithful, you can live with confidence that God knows when and where and how to bless you. Because he is faithful, you can live with confidence to know when he will bless you, how he will bless you, and where he will bless you. He's ready, he's willing, and he's able to bless such a great way that all the nations will fear him. Look at verse 7. God shall bless us, but let all the ends of the earth fear him. Or another way to say it, let all the ends of the earth proclaim him. What is the fear of God? The fear of God is the fear of God. That is, if you really know and worship God, there ought to be some things you're afraid to say. There ought to be some things you're afraid to do and some places you're afraid to go without God. This is the goal of God's blessing in your life, that the ends of the earth should fear Him or proclaim Him. But the good news is, is that the fear of God is that if you really fear God, you have nothing to fear at all. We preached on this a couple weeks ago. Psalm 23, verse 4. You know it well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 46, 1-3, God is our refuge and strength, 
a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Church, as we close today, I just want to encourage you with that. Have you prayed, God, I want to reach the nations for you. I want to reach my neighborhood for you. Look, we, we shared about this last week. We don't know how, how we're going to reach out in a, in a church-wide fashion in these days. A lot of the work of reaching people for Jesus is simply going to come from individuals of a church in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in the places God's already put them being faithful to share the gospel. Remember the big idea. God desires to reach the world for His glory and use you in the process so that people may perceive Him. They may know Him. They may praise Him. They may worship Him. And they may profess Him or they may fear Him. I would just simply ask you to pray. Lord, how is it in these days that you would, you would use me to reach people for your glory? I'm so grateful for our church. We have people who, who a small group of people who sow masks to give out to others that the gospel goes forth with. We have people who are serving in, in ministries uh, of Sunday school teaching in these days. We have people who are baking and serving behind the scenes with people in their neighborhoods. We have a lot of work going on. But together with one voice, we want to see people praise the Lord. Yes, to be saved. Yes, to be forgiven of sin. Yes, to get out of the bowels of hell. But that God would be glorified through and in all the process. How is it that you would ask God to use you this week? May you be faithful, may you listen, may you respond in obedience, like Joshua and Caleb and all those who've walked before us. Let's pray together. Father, as we close today, we want to thank you so much for this time. Lord, we want to thank you that we have the opportunity to even be heard by you. Lord, we desire to be blessed, not to be selfish, but Lord, that others may come to know you, that they may worship you, that they may fear you. Father, that is our prayer. Give wisdom to those watching today, especially praying for those without Jesus Christ, that you would stir them by your spirit to see their sin, to see the forgiveness that only comes through your son. Father, we love you so much. We pray this today in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Again, my name is Darren Smith. I want to give special thanks, and you can't see him, but uh, to Pastor Nelson Nisley, who's recording this. On behalf of our pastoral staff, if there's anything we can do to help you, we'll do our, our absolute best. Please call us. Text us. The information is on your screen. We'd love to connect with you. If you just want to know more about our church and know more about Jesus Christ, let this be the day. We are a small church, but we have an amazing big God. We're grateful for the work God is doing here. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time, and God bless you, and may God give you strength this week to do His will. God bless.